Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. Hey, and this is Anthony. And this is episode 274, Top 10 Euros with Solo Modes. We'd like to thank all of our Patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new episode, but especially Christopher Megan for being a brand new Patreon backer. Chris, you rock, my friend. All right, Anthony, we are back with a brand new episode and actually one of the more important episodes, especially in this time, so to speak. And that is actually the top 10 Euro games, you know, a little bit of the heavy, crunchy kind of stuff with solo modes or single player. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I guess we were trying to think of like good top 10 topics and I was like, oh, you know what we haven't done is go through my collection and find the games I like the most. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> slash dot 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 euro games with solo modes uh and so i started to build a list and there was like 20 games on here i had to narrow it down and you're like you're trying to like do those even exist i'm like oh yeah <laughs> there's a bunch so so um, we got 10 for you a few honorable mentions if you like solo play or have never done it before but play euros this is the episode for you well then it's the episode for me because i have not soloed my Euro games as of yet. I know that a couple of them have solo single player kind of modes to it, but I was actually pretty surprised at this list. And obviously dealing with the lockdown that we have, I'm really excited to know which games are best here. So Anthony is bringing us way back to table for one and every night's game night to bring us the top 10 euros with solo modes. But before we get to that feature review, we want to bring you some brand new news and some things that are going on in the industry. So we have some good news, and we have some not-so-good news. So I guess starting off with the not-so-good news, but I guess it's good kind of in a way, so to speak, Spiel 2020, Essence Spiel, the big, big, big European convention is canceled. Yeah, yeah, well, they use the word postponed, but it's postponed until next year, so... It's, there's two Essens next year. Yes. <laughs> That'd be great if there was actually two Essens back to back. I'd go to the both of them. <laughs> They're like, no, we were serious. We said postponed. Yeah. No, it's not surprising at all because Oktoberfest was canceled like two or three weeks ago. And it's like two or three weeks before Essen in Germany. And Germany is taking this legitimately seriously. And it has seemingly good policies in place for social distancing and limiting events. So they are not allowing such things to happen. Sure. Still up in the air here in the States because it is dependent on each state what's happening. But I mean, for me, for my money, I don't think we're going to see a convention, at least not one with more than like a couple thousand people until next summer, 2021. I mean, it sucks. I don't like that, but I think that's what's going to happen. Yeah, I think if the spiel is canceled, of all conventions that are canceled, then I think that's really the biggest indicator that nothing else is really going to happen this year. I mean, there's nobody more crazy about board games than the Europeans. And obviously Eschenspiel is the largest board game convention out there. So I don't really know because again, you know, a lot of the board gaming that we see out there and a lot of the games that come out of the market typically are geared towards coming out at the spiel And if there's no spiel, then they don't really have that kind of marketing arm or that presentation type of situation to show it off to everybody. So we might actually see a slowdown in uh, 
new releases and upcoming games. Yeah, this is what I was wondering, because I'm still getting press releases for Gen Con, which hasn't canceled yet. Uh, yes. They're supposedly talking to um, publishers this week about what's going to happen. So I imagine we'll yep. hear something in the next few days about what Gen Con's doing. I think it's going to be canceled, but I don't Ooh, be careful. yet. <laughs> yeah. Don't say that aloud. People are very, very sensitive about Gen Con possibly canceling this year. But yeah, I can't imagine it going forward. But if you've ever been to Gen Con, if you've ever been to Indiana, they kind of do their own thing. So that's a really cool thing about Indiana, but sometimes could be problematic. So we'll see. But I I am going to go along with you, Anthony. I'm going to press my luck. I'm going to roll the dice on this one. And I'm going to agree with you here. I think that we're not going to see that happen this year. No, no, I think they're out. I think PAX is probably out, uh, especially because of the state that PAX will be in, which is my state. and being pretty strict about things here so i don't think any of that's going to happen but then like the big question i had is is it going to be like the movie industry where everybody just holds all their releases until they can get some kind of marketing push or is it gonna be more like the video game industry where they're like no we're still going to release everything it's just we're gonna have to do it creatively because there's so much money invested that we can't afford not to release it you know i guess we'll find out uh, which of those two things happens because the last two months we haven't really seen any board game releases everybody held everything asmodee held everything until june but in june asmodee is going to release i think 20 games or something like that um 40 unique titles just stuff they've like stopped you know stacked up over the course of three months mm-hmm. is it going to be that in december or are we just going to have a normal release schedule with, with less marketing so i guess we'll find out once we get into the summer and all the big games are supposed to come out Uh, But right now, we don't really know. Well, I think one of the interesting things is obviously Origins is not happening in June. They've pushed it back to September, which I don't think is going to happen in September. But they're doing Origins online. So I would love to hear, and really more than anything else, I would love to hear. I just want to hear a presentation, a panel discussion just from Gamma. I want the board game industry to sit down with all the representatives or as many as you could stick on a Zoom call and just talk about what's going on and what they're thinking going forward because that that's information that we really need and they've been pretty quiet up to this point. Yeah, it's... I mean, to be fair, nobody knows what to do with any of this. I don't think any industry had a plan in place mm-hmm. to like communicate or develop or do anything with any of this. Like, Look at the movie industry, which is a multi-billion dollar industry year over year. They didn't know what the heck they were doing. You know, They still yes. don't. Like I was reading a thing today about how the new Christopher Nolan movie that's supposed to come out this summer, if they manage to release it and people can go see it and actually makes money, other people might release movies. If they can't, all the other studios are just going to pull everything until December. Like, like what a weird plan, but that's what you do, right? You're like, well, if this can't make money, nothing can. So we're all out, you know, I don't, I don't know that there's like a big game release coming up that would fit the bill like that, but. Uh, like it's you know every industry's got to do their own thing and right now the board game industry is not big enough to have like a clear plan in place so it'll be interesting to see what they do maybe our next top 10 list will be games that you can play at a safe distance at least six feet or more yeah right (laughs) (laughs) what can i yell through a mask from six feet away (laughs) 
can you move my piece? It's way over on your side. Nope, too late, Scott. <laughs> yeah. You can't reach it. That's it. No one can touch each other's pieces. I mean, it may spawn a whole range and genre of board games upcoming. Maybe we'll move back to that old type of war game with those little, like, you know, push rakes where you push your pieces on the board, you know, in like military kind of style. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be fantastic. Or like the Cones of Duncher, where it just takes up, you know, a city block to play it, right? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, we do have some good news uh, coming from Europe. Uh, the Spiel des Jahres nominations were re- revealed for 2020. So, uh, Anthony, why don't you go through those? Let us know what's going to hit the uh, big awards ceremonies. Yeah. So, uh, Spiel nominees were just announced, um, as you said. And the three Spiel nominees, like the game of the year, they're primary award which is like light family games like these are games that are meant to be like learn in five to ten minutes play with anybody they include my city from reiner knizia and cosmos this has not been released in the u.s yet but i think it's coming really soon i think originally it was going to be like an origins ish release so it should be out sometime this summer nova luna which is uve rosenberg and corny van morsel this is out it came out maybe a month before the lockdown and was incredibly overpriced. <laughs> like, I think Stronghold licensed it or something. It was, it's a light little game, like patchwork level of complexity. And it was 50 bucks. So wow. I I know like two people who've played it and they have this, they played the same copy. I don't know anybody else who has it because nobody was going to pay that much for this game. But sure. apparently it's amazing. So that's like the front runner from what I've read. And then the third game is Pictures from Daniela and Christian Stior. And uh, PD Verlag, I have not really read or heard anything about this game. Um, so I think it's relatively newish for North America. Um, obviously, this has been out in Germany for a little while because it got nominated. But yeah, so I haven't played any of these. I think only one of them's out here and it was barely out. Uh, so as usual, hopefully get a chance to try some of these. I'm not sure if that's going to happen this year by July, but um <laughs> Like Nova Luna is the front runner, at least in like the popular mindset of people who've played more than one. Sure. All right. So next group of games, this is much easier for me to talk about because I've played all three of these. The Kennerspiel, which is the connoisseur game of the year. This is supposed to be heavier games. Some years it's not. <laughs> so I think this year we had two games that probably could have been nominated for the Spiel. They're slightly heavier, but not much. And honestly, I thought one of them definitely was going to be nominated for this spiel, and it just wasn't, which is weird to me. So we have Cartographers, a role-player tale. Uh, this was published by uh, Thunderworks Games here in the U.S., I think Pegasus Spiel in Germany. And it's a roll-and-write, um, but with cards, so flip-and-write, whatever you want to call it. But it had a couple <laughs> of cool mechanics. It had like, variable scoring mechanics. The deck of cards and what you flip is different every time. And it also had a cool thing where a certain card would force you to swap sheets with other players and they would draw something bad on your sheet. So it is at the end of the day, like a flipping right, but it, to me, it was the best one that came out in 2019. So it's cool to see it up here. Mm-hmm. Um, the next one is the crew uh, quest for planet nine. This one, I talked about this like two, three weeks ago. Uh, I think it's cosmos here in the U S and it's incredibly hard to find because they released it like a week after the lockout started. <laughs> But it's a trick-taking game with cooperative elements where you're trying to like manipulate the tricks to go to certain people in certain orders. 
I think it's brilliant. I gave it a buy. I thought it was going to be a Spiel nominee. I thought it was going to win the Spiel. So I still think it'll win now with Kenner Spiel because I think it's that good of a game. But I'm a little miffed that it got nominated here, not there. But I guess they consider it a little bit heavier. And then the last one here, because I feel like every year they have to throw one of these in there, is The King's Dilemma. This is from Horrible Games, uh, designed by Lorenzo Silva, Kjelmer Hawk, and Carlo Borelli. And it is a legacy game, like a, definitely a legacy game. You start the game as a, a king of a certain, um, or the lord, I guess, of a certain duchy or uh, group. And you're trying to influence the king of this general kingdom. Um, each of the different uh, factions, I think there's like 12 of them in the box. And the game only plays up to five. So, you know, you get some you know variability. But each game will influence the next and so on and so forth. So it's definitely a legacy game has packets it has envelopes you just do a lot of voting it's very very social um you might have seen the so shut up and sit down video of this one because uh they reviewed it and they loved it um i actually got a chance to play the first four or five of these uh with my local game group here before things shut down and had a lot of fun with it it's really really good and it's short it's like 40 minute games so it was like a good warm-up to other heavier stuff um and it's not like backstabby necessarily, but it's, you argue a lot, which can be fun. So that's definitely, I'm glad to see that one on here because I think it's a fantastic nomination. I don't think it'll win necessarily, but it's really cool that it's here. All right. And then last but not least, the Kinderspiel, the children's game of the year. I haven't played any of these, which is the case every year. We've got Photo Fish from Logos, Speedy Roll from Piatnik, and Versin de Roboter from NSV. Um I don't really have anything to say on these because I don't know anything about them. They're all German. They haven't come to the U.S. And none of them are hobby games, so I'm not sure any of them will come to the U.S. So uh, typically, if there's a hobby game on there, you, you know you'll see it eventually. But the sure. rest of these, we may or may not ever see. Yeah, it's a shame. I mean, a lot, a lot of their Kinderspiel games are really probably the best games that they have of all of these nominees from year to year. They really know their children's games. And Typically, they're kind of hard to get over here, but when they do, they really have a big impact. And I really like the the imagination behind a lot of the Kinderspiel games. I wonder just what is it going to take for us to actually have that here in the U.S., more of a presence? Like you mentioned the Haba games, but beyond that, there's a lot of great innovative gaming that's going on there. It's, it's a shame that we don't see more of that here in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And it's funny because the last two years... The winner of the Kinderspiel was a hobby game. Um, last yeah. year was uh, Tell Their Vikinger, which is like you just roll these little balls. It's like a Viking game. My kids love it. It's fantastic. Yeah. The year before that was Funkenschlotz, which I think was the um, Dragon's Breath, which my daughter absolutely adored for like two years. She's kind of grown out of it now. She's five and a half. But yeah. at like three, four years old, that game was, oh, gosh. <laughs> like I don't think there's been a game we've played that, as much as that one. So it's cool when they come over. Ice Cool was the year before, yeah. and that, I mean, that was not German, I don't believe that was, I think that was US, actually, but for the most part, these games are just fantastic, so it's always a little frustrating when we can't get them. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's sad that we continue to raise a generation on, you know, Candyland and Connect Four and Monopoly and stuff like that, when there's really some... Or I honestly believe it's probably the most innovative area of board gaming that's going on there because there's nothing harder than keeping a child's attention. Mm -hmm. So if you can get them to play a game at any point, that's great. 
I hope one day that we'll see the, the the complexity and diversity here. I guess the only thing that really bothers me, but again, it's one of those situations where I had no expectation of this actually happening, you know, year from year, year, all the Kenner spiels that came out. I wanted to see underwater cities on here. Oh yeah. But I know it's too heavy for what they consider a, you know, gamers game, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, I mean, they gave it a nomin or a recommendation. So, like, yeah. what what the spiel does every year is like, here's our nominees, and then here are some other games we recommend. Uh, so the the recommendations, which I didn't list, let's see if I can find those recommendations for the Kenner spiel were uh, Underwater Cities, like you mentioned, uh, Res Arcana, which was another one a lot of people thought was going to get nominated, and then um, Paladins of the West Kingdom. Sure, which, uh, I think. All of uh, Shem Phillips' games have gotten, not all of them, but if, several of them have gotten a lot of recognition uh, from Spiel, including um, the one of his first games, I think, was, you know, actually won the Spiel. The Spiel nominations that, or recommendations, I'm sorry, were uh, The Fox in the Forest, uh, Little mm-hmm. Town, Draftosaurus, which is fantastic, by the way. I uh, played that recently with the kids. Really, really like that. And then Kitchen Rush, which is like a little co-op kitchen game. So lots of good stuff in those recommendation lists too. Always good to check those out as well. Sure. All right. So there are your Spieldish nominations. Keep with us and we'll let you know how those nominations kind of bear out and which actually wins the award. It's always an interesting kind of field of games that they put out there. And typically the games that do win kind of explode. You'll see those at the table all over the place, people purchasing those. There'll be a run on those games. So, you know, Check those out. All right, Anthony. So that's everything that's going on with us and going on with the board gaming industry. Let's get on to the episode and let's talk about our acquisition disorders. All right. Yeah. So for me, first up, I have Musical Chairs from Rio Grande Games and uh, designer Kelly North Adams. This is legit Musical Chairs as a card game. So (laughs) (laughs) the idea here is you have a hand of eight cards and you're going to play them um, in order, lowest to highest. And you'll keep going until somebody can't actually play a card or they choose not to. Uh, You know, there's other optional actions you can take. Maybe they choose not to do anything. So it ends, the quote unquote music stops and everyone has to take a seat. Um, So after all the cards are played, players then are going to move their pawns around the board. And and that happens every time you play a card. So you're constantly moving your your meeple and you're trying to choose where you want to be. Um, because the color of the chair that you're in front of, it's like this little circular board. It has all the chairs and they're each colored. Um, to, and it looks colorblind friendly because each chair is really weirdly shaped. You will then try to pick one that's going to match up with the cards that you play and, and kind of the tableau, not tableau, I guess, but like the display that's coming out that everybody's playing because it's going to influence how you score things. Um, if two more, two or more people end up on the same chair as in musical chairs, this is my favorite part what they call a butt battle must take place. So <laughs> players then can play additional cards from their hand to claim the chair effectively. So if you held cards back throughout the round, which you probably will have based on like how it plays out, you can kind of have a, I guess, almost deterministic battle with the, those cards to, to see who gets the points from getting that chair. Sounds really fun. It looks really quick and simple. Like, I imagine this game can't take more than an hour. I think they've marked it 30 to 60. So that seems about right based on like the, the gameplay video I saw. And 
the pricing on it seems about right, 20 to 30 bucks. Rio Grande always has really nice on, on pricing. Um, their games can be sometimes hard to find outside of conventions. So I'll be interested to see if this one hits distribution at all. And obviously there's no solo mode for this. <laughs> it's very interactive. So um, I have to hope my family's interested in playing it, but it does look really cool. I, I'm going to pick it up if I see it around. Um, that's Musical Chairs. And uh, yeah, I believe that's out or coming out very soon. Cool. It's nice to see uh, a classic game actually in board game form. So it's a lot of fun. Nice. So a game that I'm going to talk about is a quasi-acquisition for me, um, in part because this combines two of my favorite loves. So first off, Small World. I'm a big, big fan of Small World. And Small World has been a mainstay in my collection, even more so because it played with the family it played with friends it even played with hardcore gamers they had a fantastic kickstarter that produced small world 2 which was an online video game version you could play it on steam you could play it on your apps and it was a fantastic app great had a a bunch of the expansions obviously there's so many expansions to small world but it had a couple of the main expansions in the uh, base game so it's a really fantastic time if you haven't played small world pretty simple small world is all about picking a civilization uh, a race that's going to have a natural ability and those abilities will be based on a number of different things usually they're based on conquest because this game is all about scoring points by holding certain locations on the board knocking out other opponents and just generally staying active on the board as much as possible at some point your civilization will go into decline you'll flip the whole board over the little kind of player board and you'll still be able to score points based upon that civilization in decline and you'll pick another civilization up so unlike most of these area control games you can play out the fun of that race coupled together with a randomly you know combined special ability play it out, have a lot of fun with it, and then it burns out and you could flip it over or play it as long as you can play it and bring in another race. So again, you got to play a lot of really interesting asymmetrical power sets as far as civilizations are concerned that you get to play out on the board. It's fun, it's simple, it's deterministic battling. So if you have enough tokens and you have the right ability, you can knock out whomever is in there so you don't have to kind of like look at a sheet or figure out if there's dice rolls back and forth. I have five. You're on a land that causes, you know, me to bring two troops over and you have one more token on there. It's three. I have five. I take it over automatically. You lose one of those troops and you take one of those back. Pretty simple. Really great mechanics. Nice cartoony artwork here in this game. And they've had a number of number of expansions, including the super mega big, collector's edition box which i did pick up because again crazy small world fan recently small world of warcraft so if you ever played world of warcraft or warcraft one two or three or any of the other kind of games that came out of the warcraft universe it's kind of hard to meet somebody who doesn't know something about wow or warcraft on some level they're doing small world but with a skin so to speak of world of warcraft so you are battling for the lands of Azeroth 
and it's the Alliance versus the Horde. So again, you're going to have 16 starting races with 20 powers that are going to be randomly paired together. And you are going to battle based on those two teams. So depending on which side you're on, you're trying to knock the other side out. You have your allies here. And you have all the traditional races here. The Orcs, the Dwarves, the Trolls, the Wargans, uh, the Horde, the Alliance. You have everybody basically in this game. And then a number of different special powers and abilities that kind of play into the match. It's Small World. It's World of Warcraft. So it kind of does everything for me. Probably with the exception that I probably own all of Small World at this point. Probably don't need this, but I'm looking forward to getting more information about this game because if it could do enough different, maybe it's worth the pickup. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I've still somehow never played Small World. And How has that happened? <laughs> I don't know, man. You talk about it forever. Like, I used to live over there. You never brought the thing, game thing out. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and I haven't known anybody since who has a copy. So I've never played Small World. And I, I like World of Warcraft. It's something I spent a lot of time with, you know, yes. 15 years ago. So I feel like I should be excited for this. But honestly, it hasn't really done anything for me. I mean, it's like the chibi artwork, which I don't know. I'm just kind of done with for like, yeah. Like, let's take a thing that has real, not realistic artwork, obviously, but just like, you know, serious stuff. And then like, let's cheapify it. And part of that's, you know, that's small world. That's the look of small world. But I don't know. I guess I need to play this game at some point, like the, the original, and then determine if it's worth investing or even looking at the reskin. Well, next time you come over, I'll scour my collection to pull out the, uh, the the giant wooden crate <laughs> that the special edition comes in you know for some reason it's huge it's wonderful it's beautiful they did not put handles on it so you're literally managing this like i don't know i don't even remember what the dimensions are so big but it's like four foot by two foot it's just it's just a giant <laughs> quasi cube you know rectangle thing and it's all heavy wood so they did a great job I want to kind of like put handles into it, but I I would never do that. <laughs> so yeah, right. <laughs> one day, one day we'll we'll get to play Small World. But again, one of the great things about Small World is that I don't know about this version specifically, but it came with maps that matched player count. So when you play, I would say ninety nine percent of area control games, the map is always an issue because mm -hmm. it never really scales properly because of the player count and it's like one map even if you knock a couple of sections off it's still not great this actually had a map for every player count so that was great because again it, it was it was made that way all right anthony so that's everything that we want to get to the table let's talk about the games we did get to the table and the tablet let's talk about our at the tables all right anthony what do you have up for us this week all right yeah so i real quick before i dive into the game i actually played for any amount of time I am meant to originally <laughs> review the Steam release of Charterstone. And I did get a chance to play it. I played two games on there. And I don't know. I still don't like Charterstone. So I don't think I'm going to play anymore. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's not really a review. So this is definitely not a review of any sense of the word. But the, the app does a good job of recreating the game. So if you like the game, it's all there. Um, it has a lot of different features. You can play locally multiplayer with ai opponents um you can play with less players and then it does kind of the automa to fill in the rest 
You can play online with your friends. You can even play just like one-off games with a like randomly generated completed board, which is kind of cool. I've never played with a completed board, so I might do that at some point. But just kicking it up and starting the first two, three games of that campaign, I was like, oh, that's right. I didn't like this campaign. It's boring and slow. It doesn't make any sense. So I'm not going to finish that. And that was like my project for like the last couple of weeks to try to do that. And I just, I don't think it's going to happen. And it's not, it's not the app. I don't think, I think the actual presentation is good. You know, Stonemeyer does a good job of partnering with people who make good apps. And the wingspan app looks good by all accounts to start, but it's just not for me. So if you loved Charterstone, if you already played it, then I have a feeling you'll probably like the app. If you're like me and you were very let down by it or just kind of bored, it's the same thing. <laughs> like they didn't change the rules, obviously. So, you know, maybe save your money on that. Yeah, Charterstone for me was definitely one of those games that I was highly anticipating, had a lot of acquisition disorder about it. So much so that not only did I pick up the base game, but I also picked up the recharge pack because it, I knew it was something that I was going to love. And when it got to the table, it did not meet expectations. So I'm hoping that actually the online digital version does a little bit of a better job kind of like playing out the civilizations. But I guess we'll have to wait and see. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I figure... If I can get a group of like live humans to play it with me, um, I might give it a go just because then you have other people to talk to while you're playing this boring game. But <laughs> I'm not going to go through it by myself. Like I already did that once. I'm not doing it again. So it's it's okay. I, again, I, I didn't hate it. I think I gave it like a like a like a light dodge, hard. I don't know. It was like somewhere between a dodge and a play for me when I first got through it, but. It's like I didn't hate it. It wasn't a burn or anything. It's just, I just was so bored. <laughs> it's such a boring game. So it's, I didn't feel much better playing the digital version. So that's Charterstone. The game I did actually play, the one I spent a decent amount of time with in the last like 10 days or so, is Nemo's War. And Nemo's War is a solo game. Uh, it has a cooperative mode in it where you can play up to four players, I think. But this was actually originally designed as a solo game, and they added the cooperative version on as like a Kickstarter thing in the second edition. So, and when you do it that way, people are just playing different parts of the game, which just never feels right to me. So I haven't done that. I haven't played co-op. Obviously, I'm home alone. So I can't speak to that. But just reading through it, looking at it, I, I, don't, I can't imagine it's as much fun. The solo version of the game, however is this big intricate puzzle in which you're playing through all these different plot points and pieces of uh, Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. So talking about Captain Nemo, of course, Nemo's War. And it is so good. It's such a good game. And like I've had this for a long time. I backed the Kickstarter for the second edition. So I think this thing shipped maybe two years ago uh, at this point. I've had it on my shelf. And I tried learning it a couple times. The rule book is not very good. It's kind of written almost like a war game rule book. This isn't a war game by any means. It has some war game elements to it, but it's definitely not a war game um, through and through. It's definitely more of like a thematic, borderline like Ameritrashy. I wouldn't even call it that, but there's a lot of dice rolling. But the game itself is just, it's such a solid encompassing of like, mitigation of dice luck 
building out a tableau, putting yourself in the best position to make the best possible decisions, even though at the end of the day, like a really, really bad set of dice rolls can, you know, put you under. In the game, you're going to be moving around the Nautilus, the little submarine um, from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and you'll be visiting all seven of the major oceans, as well as a bunch of smaller ones on the map. And you'll have, there's a cool mechanic at the start of every round where you're going to roll the dice and the difference between the lowest and highest value roll is going to determine how many action points you have. So you can have as few as zero, obviously, if you roll doubles, and this is like a lull turn is what they call it, where like different things happen, certain things reset, or you can have as many as five if you get a six and a one. And with those action points, you're going to do things like move, you're going to battle warships or merchant ships. You're going to search for treasure. You're going to um, incite uprisings in the locals. Um, there's all sorts of different things you can do. You can upgrade your ship. You can repair things. You have three different tracks that measure the strength and, I guess, mental acuity, really, of the captain, the amount of crew you have left, and the hull of your ship. These are basically your health points, but there's three different tracks you have to keep track of. The really cool thing about these tracks, though, is that the higher they are, like towards 100%, the more they can positively benefit your dice rolls. So if you're at full health, the crew, for example, gives you a plus three when you put it towards modifying your dice roll, which is great. It really helps to like improve things. Um, you can also buy like upgrades for your ship, which can even further improve it. So there's a lot of ways to help mitigate and improve how you're rolling dice. Certain actions you take, you can discard treasures you've picked up to improve them even more. Um, there was one dice roll I really, really had to hit just to reduce the like the threat level that I built up. And so I used my crew. I had like the upgrade on my ship, so I was plus four. And then I discarded like a five-point treasure, which is insane. You wouldn't normally do that, but I had to make the dice roll. So I was like, all right, plus nine, right? And I needed, a, I think, a nine or a 10 to hit the thing. So I'm like, this guarantees it. I could roll a one, and I'm still going to be fine. Or roll a two, and I'm still fine. And that's always fun for me, like any Euro or any other type of game where, yeah, there's dice rolling, so it's variable what happens, but you have a lot of control over like manipulating how it plays out. The other cool thing about the game is that you have different motivations. So there are four of these. You start the game with one that you'll select, and it'll determine both your losing conditions, like how quickly you can lose in different ways, but also what you score points for. So you can set, uh, like for the beginner version of the game is exploration which you want to get as many treasures as possible and explore these different areas. There's also, you know, you want to go to war, so you want to destroy as many warships as possible. Um, there's different motivations you can set to the captain. And there's a point in the game when you're pulling these different cards out that you will have the opportunity to switch your motivation. So let's say you have a bunch of points in something that wasn't worth anything. You're like, all right, I'm switching my motivation because now I, I want to sink all these warships, whereas before I was just, you know, searching for treasure. The result is this just very dynamic, very tense gameplay that just it plays through the whole time. Like it feels tense from maybe 20 minutes in all the way to the end. At any point in time, you feel like oh, I could lose right now. And it's decently difficult to win. It's not impossible, though. Uh, the first time I played, I did lose, but I was within, I don't know, a few points of, of getting what I needed to get. Um, I've lost a couple times on Imperialist victories where the warships just overran me. But in general, if you play it smart, if you have a good strategy, you always have a good chance to win, which to me is just, just the hallmark of a good solo game. So Nemo's War, uh, second edition from Victory Point Games is a buy for me. I'm really glad I picked it up. Um, I didn't even realize it, but like looking at it now, it has Eno Tool artwork. 
which is, I think this is like the first victory point game that actually looked good. They've done a couple now since, but this was the first one where they're like, we're going to make a really nice looking game. This is the result. If you are a solo gamer or are just bored and alone at home right now, <laughs> like consider tracking down a copy of Nemo's War. There's a few expansions they've released for that as well. I think three of them, like little packs of cards. One of them's like a Christmas expansion, which is kind of cute. But yeah, just the base version of the game. And there's a couple of really good tutorial videos on YouTube that'll teach the rules. Um, so you don't have to deal with the rule book, which is not great. But yeah, this was a fantastic surprise. I had a lot of fun with it. I wish I'd played it earlier, but now that I have played it, I plan on playing it some more. So that is Nemo's War. Yeah, I really like the production here. I mean, obviously it's a, a bigger, bigger step up, especially when you're looking at solo games. You really do have to entertain yourself and you have to sit with the board a lot longer where i feel like if you're playing with other people at the table there's a lot of interplay and you're trying to wonder what someone else is going to do and here in the game it really does give you that kind of old time feel and as you mentioned the eno tool artwork and the graphic design here is fantastic as far as you know a what you would think was just like a you know when i when i think solo games i think of just like bare bones you're playing by yourself you're just lucky to have a game but <laughs> they really went all out here i mean what a what a nice design for this game and uh overall fantastic production yeah yeah i mean and if you want to know what it used to look like click on the first edition because yeah <laughs> it looked bad it was an ugly game yeah um, it had its following and its big cult following of course sure but this game when it first came out in 2009 it's exactly what you're describing. <laughs> so, yes. The fact that they spent so much and put so much energy into it. And the Kickstarter was huge. I think it, this game made six figures easily. Like it, it was a big, big Kickstarter. And they've done two since then. So there's been three Kickstarters now for this game. So obviously it's very popular. But sure. just the lengths you can go from like almost looking like a print and play to being like this high production thing. And yeah, solo gamers, there's enough of this out there. And right now this is you know, one of the better ones you can get. Fantastic. Definitely worth a, a checkout if for no other reason than to admire the great artwork and production here. All right. So, all right. So I'm going to talk about a game that I didn't get to the table, but I did get to the tablet. And actually, in fact, it's one of my favorite games of all time, board game version. That's Spirit Island. It was recently released to Steam in early access so the game is still in development, but it's a full playable game that you can play solo or you can do remote play. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. So Spirit Island, if you have not played before, it's all about this wonderful island uh, with the inhabitants of Dahan who are just living peacefully. And these European colonists invaders move on in and through their exploring building and ravaging they just destroying the land destroying the dahan the native people there and the spirits of their island have now come to their defense and again what's wonderful and brilliant about this game is that it is a co-op game that allows you to pick one of these spirits that you'll play as or multiple ones if you play in a solo mode by yourself and the spirits combine differently, and they're very complex. And even though the gameplay is pretty much always the same, the spirits have different aspects about their personality that really comes into the gameplay. So you might have a spirit that it's a 
very aggressive, a fast force. And a lot of its moves are fast. You might have a spirit that's all about fear and domination, or you might have a spirit of the ocean that's all about flooding out and wiping away the people from the land. So there is a lot of different asymmetrical power sets and really truly kind of dives deep into what these spirit powers might be. Wonderful game at the table. Let's talk about the online Steam version. So first off, you're going to recognize the fact that, again, the game is in development, so this can't be a full review until it is full and complete, at least as far as, you know, the developers feel like it's good to be reviewed. But that doesn't mean you're getting a bare-bones presentation here. The opening screen's fantastic, and they really go out of their way to kind of give you a feel that this is a story, a history about a civilization that's fighting back against the invaders so the game opens up you have your options for a new game a quick game you can actually go through the rule book you can go through all the different spirits all the different cards which is wonderful typically you're going to play a new game and at this point you'll get to decide how large of an island you're going to play from one board and one spirit to four boards and four spirits so no matter what you pick on there you'll be able to kind of edit it as good things go on after that it gives you the story prompt of when the invaders came, only four spirits were able to fight, right? In this case, a four-player game. Now, it allows you to pick the spirits based upon their complexity, whether they're very straightforward or varied and diverse. Again, you can choose to pick whatever you want, and you have an opportunity to kind of alter that later on. And then finally, it allows the game to kind of up the story mode, so to speak, and also the complexity by bringing in certain European invaders. So maybe you'll play as Sweden, and that's going to have a different gameplay element to how the game plays out. Once everything's set up, you'll see the Kingdom of Sweden board, which will tell you the different levels that have come into play and how Blight kind of affects the land. And then the game will set you up with the four spirits in the different lands. You'll have an opportunity to swap out these spirits at this point. So if you want to play with a different combination, you could do so. And then you'll be able to, you know, as I said earlier, alter the level and what you're playing with. Now, the game itself comes in three visual modes. So you could play the standard 2D visuals, which is fine. You can play a 3D version, which is, again, the 2D board. But the Dahan villages will pop up a little bit. And so will the invaders. They kind of move across the board as the different stages take place. I recommend that version, the 2D with the 3D element. So just a straight 3D. And then they have this odd little altered 3D version where everything is a little odd. They kind of try to 3D-fy the board, if that's a way of talking about it this year. And the 3D terrain just doesn't look very good. It just It's just not at that point yet. So I'd recommend the 3D version, just the very basic level here. So again, it's Spirit Island, and the interface is quite good. You're going to have the board in the middle, and you're going to have each of the spirits in the corner. And once it's your turn, and the game will walk you through it. So this is not Tabletopia. This is not Tabletop Simulator. Uh, we've played or we've attempted to play Spirit Island on those platforms. Here, it actually plays as a regular kind of video game. So you don't have to worry about, did I forget to do something? Did I move a card? It'll actually walk you through the different steps. So you'll pick your growth. You'll pick your cards. You'll use those cards to interact with the other spirits. And to interact with the land, knock out the invaders, stop the building, prevent the ravages. And then hopefully, if you meet the conditions, 
of terror to kind of get rid of all the invaders and such, you'll win the game. And when you do, you'll get a little kind of end screen with your spirit or spirits that came into play. And it says that you won everything, pretty much. I'll, I'll leave the final screen to, you know, your final play. But the gameplay itself is quite good. Everything is available on that one screen. You don't have to flip through multiple screens. A simple click will bring everything up, whether it's the cards, whether it's the special powers, whether it's the board. Everything is available. Beautiful artwork taken straight from the game. Nothing is, like, altered in such a way that you're going to feel weird. So the same vividness of the artwork is present here. I like that because if you've already played the board game, you know exactly what to do. If you've never played the board game before and this is your first play of the game, you can easily take a look at the player board, take a look at the information on the player board that will explain the strategies, the complexities, the backstories, and how you have to win the game by combining the different spirits' powers. So Spirit Island for Steam, an early access mode, is quite good. I would definitely give it a high play. The challenge comes into here. Spirit Island is, in my opinion, only in my opinion, is best as a co-op game. And right now, it does not have that opportunity to play multiplayer unless you quasi-play multiplayer through remote access, Anthony? Yeah, maybe. We <laughs> we tried to do this for an hour and you know, I don't I'm not gonna say we're like Steam experts, not far from it, but the number of drivers we had to install and computers restarted and opening and closing of Windows and and eventually everything was set up and it would run and then it still wasn't streaming correctly. Sure. So they're basically relying on this built in technology in Steam, which doesn't seem to be all that great from again from our limited experience with it to replace a proper multiplayer that uses the interface of the game and it seems cheap and kind of bad because it doesn't work very well <laughs> so yeah we were not able to play this multiplayer at all um we both played it solo so similar experience there but yeah the multiplayer is just it's just not there yeah, we should mention that this digital version came out on Indiegogo, which I talked about quite a while ago, and they didn't meet their stretch goal to be able to implement the multiplayer version, you know, in early access or when the game finally hit the market. But I think it's essential. I really don't know how you just kind of just play this game alone, because what is a very good game becomes a very challenging and problematic game when you're trying to think about all the different combination of powers and how the cards work together. So you could be playing literally multiple hands of cards and that really just slows the game down a bit. Now, really what I think they should have done is they should have marketed this as a solo game. And I don't think mm -hmm. there's anything wrong with that because that's pretty much what it is right now. And I think that would be fine. I, I would love to see a DLC that has multiplayer because I would get this game in around the clock. I, I just love, love Spirit Island. I have most Spirit Island things, not all of them, but most of them. And I think this would be a, you know, a big hit. But right now, if you're looking for a solo board game and whether you played Spirit Island, you'll find it here and love it. If you've not played Spirit Island, this is not a bad way to go ahead and play it. Because again, 
it's going to walk you through each of the stages, but it, I would not recommend playing with multiple spirits. It just, it's just a little too much long-term. Yeah. yeah it, it is kind of funny though. That like, I mean, obviously we're coming from very different perspectives, but I think I feel like on this episode in particular, it's perfect because spirit Island to me is like the quintessential solo game. So like, I didn't even, it didn't even phase me because the only way I've really played the board, I played it two or three times with other players at the table but I probably played it 30 or 40 times solo in the last year. And it's even like the number one solo game on like the top 200 solo games that they do on BGG every year. So it is funny. And like, I totally respect, like it is hard, like trying to multi hand it, but it's just funny. Like we're both coming from very different perspectives on this. And I could see people from both sides of that coming in and solo players being like, great, this is what I wanted. And people who <laughs> wanted to play multiplayer being like, you're missing half the game, you know? So sure. it is kind of an interesting take on that. And I guess they went with the solo side thinking lowest common denominator, but didn't work for everybody. All right. So that's everything that's hitting our table. Now on to our feature review. So for our feature review this week, we are looking at the top 10 Euro games with solo mode. So obviously we are in a bit of a challenging time and a lot of games that are getting to the table are getting to the table with only one player. So we brought in the expert for Table for One, Anthony, has made the, aud- the audacious notion that actually there are 10 fantastic Euro games that you can play solo that are all sitting on my shelf right now, and I just do not believe the man. But I figured, you know what? Let's give him a chance. So we are going to go through the top 10 Euro games with solo modes. Yeah. Yeah. Only 10. There's only 10. <laughs> That's good. I would hate to know that there was more games on my shelf that mm. I could play right now. <laughs> There's so many games on your shelf you can play right now. <laughs> so before we get into the top 10, Anthony, do we have any uh, honorable mentions? Yeah. So like I mentioned this at the top of the show. Uh, I started this, I think I had a list of 20. And that was literally just doing a circle of my room, not my office here. I've consolidated a few down. Uh, you'll know it when we when you hear it, why I've consolidated them down. There was one in particular, though, that didn't make the list, but I wanted to mention it anyways, because some solo gamers want really long, just long games, right? And that's hard to replicate solo, because most solo games, you know, you could take a three-hour game that's a multiplayer, and solo it takes 45 minutes, because you're only playing as one person, right? The Colonists, however, is still a two to three hour game if you play it solo. I'm not going to get into the whole game, but it's basically a pick up and deliver, you know, heavy, heavy economic Euro about colonization, uh, but like a little bit fantasized in some ways. Uh, but it is interesting, uh, very clever in some ways, very bloated in other ways, but still a lot of fun if you want something that just like ramps up over the course of three to four hours, you know, two, I guess two to three hours. My play was two and a half, second play a little bit less. Multiplayer, four people, it's like a 12-hour game. So that's what you're getting with this if you want that feeling. Uh, So it didn't make the list because it's not one of my top 10, but I did want to throw it out there. If you want that kind of game, this is that game. And there aren't that many of them out there solo, unless you like want a solo war game, which we're not talking about today. All right, so let's get to the list, Anthony, and let's see how these games play solo. All right, so for our number 10, Tether to Walk-In. Solo? Pyramids? All by yourself? That's that's way too many stones, man. Come on. You don't even know. 
Teotihuacan is uh, from Dano Tushini, one of my favorite designers. And this one, out of the box, all of these games, the solos are out of the box. You don't need an expansion. It's not a fan expansion. It comes with the base game. So that was like one of my criteria here, putting this together. If you buy the game, you have the solo. In this case, you are placing a bunch of dummy dice out on the board to block certain spots. And then you have like a pyramid of tiles that you will rotate and flip through um, that allow the uh, AI player to take certain actions. So not only is the AI blocking certain parts of the board, as well as kind of just like the anchor dice that block them anyways, if you play with less than four players, but it will force you to push in different directions. So you might say, you can look at that pyramid and say, like, okay, well, the next two actions are probably going to be this and this. I know they're going to go here. I need to try to get there now before it costs me too much. And so it becomes a little bit of a race. You know, there is no solid win condition in this. There's not like a threshold you have to hit. It is, you know, in the end of the day, like a bit of a high score race. But, uh, and we'll get like, there's a few different ways that these games operate. If you haven't listened to Every Night's Game Night before, um, the other podcast I've been on in the past, where we talk about solo games and different types of solo play that there are. But a lot of Euro games approach it as try to get a higher score than X or Y, right? Like, here's a threshold. And maybe they'll give you like, different tiers at which you've positioned you're like oh you got 100 points well you did a mediocre job you didn't lose <laughs> like and that's that's a lot of them but not all of them we'll get to some other ones but this one's kind of in that ballpark but i really really like it because it does emulate how other people block your stuff a lot but gives you enough information you kind of plan ahead so you can kind of maximize the efficiency of your actions while at the same time trying to um, work within the context of what the the dummy player is doing. And it's not overly complicated like a lot of Automas. So this one's uh, one of my favorites. In general, it's one of my favorite Euros. But uh, with the solo, it's, it's just a lot of fun to kind of run through. All right, all right. I'll give you that one. But let's get on to a game I have not played. And again, it seems to be a monumental task. Our number nine game is Space Core 2025 to 2300 AD. Yes, Space Core. This one had to make the list for me. And like I actually looked it up because I'm like, it's not like a Euro, like a war game or anything, right? No, it's a Euro, right? It's straight up an economic exploration Euro in which you are building spacecraft, launching missions to planets and mining asteroids and getting profit from various things. And the coolest thing about this game is that it takes place over these multiple periods. So you start out with like the very near space where you're like just trying to get to the moon and maybe to Mars. And then it expands where you're trying to get to the rest of the inner solar system. And then it expands. You're trying to get to the outer solar system. And the true solo game is you play through all of these boards because there are different boards that come in the box. It is a GMT game. So you get the game, you punch all these tiny little bits. They're not super pretty. You look at the rule book and it's laid out in that GMT way that makes it look heavier than it is. But the weight on BGG is like a 2.9. And I think that's about right. It's not a super heavy game. It's very accessible. And it is a, just a fantastic solo puzzle to figure out how to maximize the efficiency of what you're building, how you're building it, what cards you're utilizing. Um, if you listen to every night's game, and I talk about leaving Earth a lot, is one of my favorite games, just period. I didn't put that on this list because that game is so mathy and a lot of people have trouble with it. This one is much more accessible if you want like a near future sci-fi board game. Um, so 
definitely worth checking out if you can find a copy. I think it's in print right now, actually. And there's an expansion coming in the next six, seven months or so. Um, just one of the best games GMT's put out in the last few years. All right. This is a game that I've heard about. And obviously I've played just with a bunch of people at the table, but I've heard it has a really decent solo mode at the Gates of Loyang. At the Gates of Loyang is, yeah, one of the best solo modes that Uwe Rosenberg has put together. And it's one of his earlier games. This game came out in 2009. Uh, the the goal of the game is you are building out these different fields of vegetables, you're harvesting them, you're delivering them to customers, you're putting up trading stalls, you have special helpers that you can play that give you special abilities. In the solo version of the game, you're still doing all of that, but there's also this big tableau of cards that you have to work with that is going to determine when you get cards, how you get cards. There's a special two-pack action that comes in. So you get a lot of information at the start of the game that you wouldn't normally get, and it helps you to kind of map out what you're going to do over the course of the nine rounds of this game. And you're just trying to get the highest score you can, right? So it's another high score race. and But the scoring in this game is so interesting because every round you can buy one point for $1. The next point you buy, however, costs the amount of that point. So let's say you're at five points. You spend $1, you move to 6 To move to the next one, you have to spend 7 because you're moving up to 7 So it gets really expensive to jump up and take extra points as you move up higher on the track. So getting to 20 points, which is the end of the track, is really, really difficult. So even though you're just kind of running for a high score, it's super hard to get there. I think my high score in this game is still only 18. I've never maxed the track. And... I've played it solo, I don't know, a couple dozen times. I've played it multiplayer several times. It's a tough game, and it's just a lot of fun to try to figure out that puzzle. So as far as Uwe's games go, this one kind of stands out in a lot of ways. But in that particular way, for the solo mode, it is one of the best. Yeah, it's just a really fun game trying to sell and cultivate veggies in the market. All right, so number seven, Anachrony. Now, this is a game that I have played around with a little bit solo but it's a pretty heavy game actually how do you get to the table with a solo mode yes so we're getting into different kinds of solo modes now so anachrony is from mind clash games they are known for making big complex some would say overwrought games um i disagree with that on most of their games but some of them can get a little bit much and all of them have solo modes so anachrony Cerebria, Tricarion, um, all of these games have solo modes to them. This one, however, is my favorite. So Anachrony is a worker placement game, and it has a bunch of extra stuff layered on top of it in terms of like how you manage your personal board and these machines you pick up and technologies you buy and the time travel elements. But at the end of the day, you have workers, you power up mechs, you go do things. Mechanics are fairly simple in that way. The solo mode has this flowcharty kind of chronobot thing going on and it has its own board that at first glance looks like nonsense like you look at it and there's icons everywhere there's like 50 icons on this board it's crazy but it's actually very intuitive because everything just kind of flows from spot to spot so you have the chronobot and it kind of moves around these things based on certain actions based on what you do and how you interact with it it's going to move back and forth and then where it moves just tells you what it does so you don't have to worry about like drawing different cards or manipulating different things. You can see kind of what it plans to do. I like that 
in a solo bot because it's a little more similar to working with a, a real life opponent where you can look at their tableau and what they've been doing and be like, I think you're going to do this. So I think I need to do it first, right? Especially in a worker placement game. Some of the automo type stuff, it's a little more random when you draw a card. You don't know what it's going to be. And so you're just like, I don't know. I guess I'll do this because I don't want to draw this card and they don't draw that card. And you're like, whatever. Um, this one, however, is very much a little bit more planning. Uh, it's probably my favorite like bot style programmed play that I've had in a game like this, especially for a worker placement game. And it just flows really smoothly. It doesn't look like it should. It looks like a mess. <laughs> but trust me. If you like big, heavy Euros, especially like worker placement type stuff, the Chronobot in Anachrony is top of the tier. Uh, it's well worth trying. All right. Well, I'll jump back in time and play that solo. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Our number six game is Clans of Caledonia. This is a game that always hits the table super, super late <laughs> at night at my game group. But uh, solo? Clans? Come on. Yeah. No, this one works really well solo somehow. Even with uh, the markets? Yes, yes. That's actually the only part of the game you have to automate in any way. So the way this one works is, at the start of the game, you cover up every spot on the map that costs one. So you don't get any cheap stuff, basically. Uh, and that's basically it. There's no neighborhood bonuses in the game. You're just playing on your own, um, utilizing whatever resources you have and what comes up. The market changes based on die rolls that you do in between rounds. So things are going to go up and down based on the dice. You're going to lose some contracts off the board based on the dice. And otherwise, you're just trying to maximize the efficiency of the clan that you chose with the board that's laid out. I imagine if you play this enough times solo, you kind of build a pattern and a flow of where you want to go. But the things that are random are, again, the dice rolls on the economy, uh, the contracts that come out and which sides of the boards you put out and which things end up getting blocked off. Plus like the bonuses you put in the ports. So I've played this just a ridiculous number of times because a solo game of clans takes, I don't know, 30 minutes. Like you just knock it out because you get through those rounds really quickly and you just, you uncover and discover all these different cool things you can kind of do with the resources that you have at hand. Um, so this is one of my favorites as kind of a mid heavier Euro that you can just knock out really quickly without adding a bunch of extra rules to keep track of in the solo mode. Cause you can just play the game as is. So that's a uh, clans of Caledonia. All right. Now this has to be a game that you can't play solo here. Gaia project. It's big. It's heavy. It's complex. It's about the universe building. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> so this is, I think the only game on the list where we have a full Automa deck. I mentioned I don't love the Automa deck. Um, that's why we don't have any Stonemeyer games on here. All of uh, Jamie Stegmeyer's games have an Automa mode. And the first one, Viticulture, is where the Automa deck originated. That's Morton Monrad Peterson created the Automa deck for that, and now he just does that. It's like he has a company that just does that for people. And one of the ones he did is Gaia Project, which is the space version of Terra Mystica. And it works really well. And the reason it works really well is that you don't have a bunch of weird, complicated movement rules. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have a bunch of weird, complicated resource management rules. You basically, you flip a card, you flip another card, you combine the two, you look at the things in the order, and you just do the things as they're shown. It just gives you a checklist of stuff to do for the automated player. And that's 
kind of the flip side for some of these solo games is some of them you just take your turns over and over again and things might happen in the background. Some of them you have to play a simulated turn for an automated player. How complicated that simulated turn is ends up determining whether I like a game or not. If I spend as much time managing the solo, the automated player as my own, I, I'm not a huge fan. Um, but in this case, it takes like two seconds and you go back to doing what you're doing, which is great. Gaia Project on its own is one of my top 10 games of all time. It takes everything I loved about Terra Mystica and it just improves upon it and adds all these layers to it that just is more replayable. It's less like focused in certain directions based on the faction you choose. So add the Automa to it and the fact that you have, I think, seven or eight factions out of the 10 allow you to play solo and I'm 100% on board. All right, we talked about this game earlier. It's one of my favorite games of all time, and a sad, sad shame it didn't make it to the uh, Kenner Spiel. Underwater Cities. Yes, Underwater Cities. So this one comes with a solo out of the box, and it is one of the ones where you don't have to do very much. You just, you have two endgame conditions you have to hit, one of which is you need to have built seven cities, and the other of which is you need to hit 100 points. If you don't do those two things, you lose. And then if you do do those things, you win, and you just see where your score is, and that's how you manage it. Not a lot of solo games have this, where they set like certain thresholds you have to hit, like things that need to be accomplished to win the game, because uh, it doesn't always make sense in the context of the game. This one, it does, and it is decently difficult. You know, The first few times I played it, it just didn't work. I couldn't get it to work. So... You do end up making some slightly different decisions because you don't have access to like the contract cards. Those are not, you know, available in the solo game. Um, you do want to build up an engine early to make sure you can generate the resources you need to very easily and efficiently build the cities. You know, if you can get a card early on, um, like an action card that lets you build cities outside of a normal turn, all the better because you don't want to use all your actions at the end of the game just to build the cities that you forgot to build early on. <laughs> Uh, so it is a little bit different than the base game, but not a ton, honestly. Like the base game of Underwater Cities, it is a little bit worker placement. And in this one, you do block some spaces and it is programmed which spaces are blocked. So you have to plan for it. Like, you know that at certain points of the game, you won't be able to do X, Y, or Z. Uh, but otherwise, you're kind of just free to do what you need to do and just work with the cards that are given to you throughout the game and maximize your score. So. It is pretty solid. The expansion for this is significantly harder. <laughs> so I have played the expansion now. Um, it comes with, I think, 16 different boards in the box um, that are programmed for different elements of the expansion, different modules. And four of them work for the solo mode. I have played with all four of those two or three times each, and I have yet to beat it because they upped the score to 125 that you have to hit instead of 100. And they added the, the quick start mode where you skip the first round and you just get extra stuff to start, which sounds good, except it's really harder because you don't have those cards in your tableau now. So maybe you start with a city on the board, but you don't have the cards that you would have played in those first three actions. So someday I'll beat that. I got to 120 once, so I know it's possible. I'm very close. But uh, if you want a challenging solo mode, Underwater Cities is solid. If you want a really challenging solo mode, get the expansion as well. All right, so let's go back 
to Uwe Rosenberg. We already talked about the gates of Loyang. That's got to be it, right? Yeah, so I I knew Uwe was going to be on here twice because we're talking about Euros with solo modes, right? Every single one of his games has a solo mode. It's just, it's a thing he's been doing pretty much since the beginning. And he's released a lot of games. I wasn't sure what the other game was going to be because there's ones I enjoy and there's ones that are just a little bit better. Um, so I kind of lumped a few here together. So I have three for you as number three. We have A Feast for Odin, which is my favorite Uwe Rosenberg game of all time. We have Nusfjord, which takes the same worker placement elements and just shortens it by about 70%. So Nusfjord is great because you can play a solo game in about 20 minutes. And then Fields of Arl, which is like the sandbox of A Feast for Odin, but without all the puzzly stuff that some people don't like. So kind of your pick of the litter here in terms of like Uwe Rosenberg uh, worker placement games. All three of those are very similar mechanically in terms of what you're doing on your turns. But the length of the game, the complexity of the game is a little bit different. I love all three of these. I also like... Glass Road, also like Or Labora, Lahav, all of them are great and all of them have solo modes. But these three in particular are like my top of the top. Um, Feast for Odin's probably my number one, but I know it's not for everybody. So if you like that kind of stuff and want something shorter, go with Nusfjord. If you like that kind of stuff but don't want all the weird puzzly elements, go with Fields of Arl. All right, so let's get on to something a little bit more complex, especially when it comes to tableau building, Terraforming Mars. Terraforming Mars, yes. This is the solo game that looks like kind of kicked it off for me. Like, I played solo games a bunch before 2016. Like, you know, at that point, I had a, a four year old, five year old child. My daughter was, you know, a year and a half old. So I, I played a lot of games that were solo. And I think Table for One even existed at that point. But Terraforming Mars was the game where I'm like, I'm going to play this over and over again. I love this. And the reason for it is the game is almost exactly the same. You don't change anything. You don't update anything. You just play Terraforming Mars. You have 14 generations, and you're trying to complete the three tracks. Get all the oceans out. Get the oxygen maxed out. Get the heat up. You have to do those three things within the 14 generations, and then you win, and you see what your score is. If you don't do those three things, you lose. doesn't matter what your score is. The expansions throw in a bunch of different things. Like if you start with the prelude cards, you drop that down to 12 generations instead of 14. Uh, if you have Venus next, you add the uh, extra track with Venus and you have to complete that one as well within the time frame. So there's other stuff you have to deal with. All the expansions are compatible with solo, but honestly the base game, like maybe just plus Prelude is fantastic on its own. Terraforming Mars is my most played solo game other than like a couple of card games in the last five years. And we'll probably stay there, especially with the app out now. So this is a fantastic game. All right. And now our number one game for the top 10 euros with solo boats, The Gallerist. The Gallerist. Yes. So Vital Lacerda is another designer who always includes a solo mode. And The Gallerist is still my favorite. On Mars is very good. That one came out last year. But it's a little more complicated, whereas the gallerist is just very simple. You the, the mechanics of this game are already very simple. You move your gallerist around to one of the four locations. You do the thing. You can leave assistance behind and sometimes get bumped out and do other things. The solo mode is essentially the same, but you have like a, a bot kind of moving around. You have to maneuver around to be able to do the things you want to do. 
And that's basically it. You're playing through the game. You're working around the bot, trying not to get caught in its way, but also maybe sometimes planting assistance in its path so you get to take those extra actions when you want to. So it's another one of those solo games where early on you can kind of plan things out and program it a little bit and try to know in advance what's going to happen. And you never know exactly what's going to happen, but it gives you a little bit more leeway in that. And it's not too long, uh, you know, like 30, 40 minutes to play through it total, whereas some of his other games like Lisboa or On Mars, which are very good solo games, but have a lot more things to keep track of and take at least 20 or 30 minutes longer to play are just a bit much a lot of the time. The galleries I can take out and play once or twice at night and put it away and I'm happy. So that one tops the list for me, even though all the rest of them are very good as well. All right, so that's our top 10 Euros with solo modes. Hopefully you'll get these games to the table, even if it's just a table for one. All right, so that's everything for this week. Until next time, this is Chris. And this is Anthony. And we'll save you a seat at the solo table. 